I'm Indiana University tourism professor Evan Jordan, and this is the Trip Doctor podcast. That track is called Fuse by Vizu. You can find it and more online at the Free Music Archive. A variety of places in the world have recently moved towards equality for LGBTQI people, from the legalization of gay marriage to the focus on equality for many major corporate entities, things seem to be slowly getting better. But what about the travel world? Has social progress led to better travel conditions for LGBTQI travelers? My guests today are Dr. Clifford Lewis from Charles Sturt University and Dr. Faith Ong from the University of Queensland. Clifford and Faith have been studying LGBTQI travel in Australia and Singapore for the last several years. I caught up with them at the TTRA International Conference in Melbourne this summer to talk about issues that LGBTQI travelers face, including being lumped together as if they're one homogeneous group. They also discuss what you can do as a traveler to be an ally on the road. It's about being a decent person, I guess, at the end of the day, and being vigilant in case you notice someone's being picked on, which is a very, it's a bit of a motherly statement to say. But, you know, just standing up for people who might be, be, be being picked on. Uh, but it's also the idea of, uh, you know, as we spoke about, the, the mindfulness. If you see uh, what you think is a female coming out of the male's toilet, you know, not to be quick to judge or react or respond, and vice versa. If you see what is a male coming out of a female toilet, mm-hmm. you know, I think take your time to actually examine the situation before you make claims. Uh, So just being a bit mindful in that way, perhaps. I want to start Faith and Clifford talking about research on gay travel, which is also sometimes called LGBTQ travel, which is also sometimes called other things. And it sounds like some of those may be misnomers. So when we're talking about this type of travel, how should we be referring to it to be as inclusive as possible? Oh, that's that's very interesting. Uh, From what we know from the way it's being referred to in the literature or the research is largely based on you know, when you think about the way the idea of the gay society has evolved in society. Uh, initially, it was all about gays and lesbians. And that's, that's what we saw a lot of mention of gays and lesbians in the literature as we go back and in the research as we go back. Now we understand that there are many other forms of diversity. So you might be sexually diverse, gay, lesbian, bisexual. You might be gender diverse. So you've got trans and other, you know, uh, other identities that uh, fit under there, like gender fluidity. Uh, and the literature is still catching up with that end of the tale. So while it is still LGBTQI+, uh, the LGB has been done a lot, and oftentimes the LGB has defined what, or rather the research has been extrapolated to include all the LGBTQI+, without people actually looking at trans people. And that presents a challenge by itself, because trans people often pass as the other gender, or attempt to pass as the other gender. So they might not typically or usually stick out, like when you think about people who are post-op, they might not really stick out and they want to identify with all the nuances and the travel habits as the other gender does, compared to gay people who might actually stick out because of 
you know, behaviors who might actually seek that safe space to hang out in and hang out with other people who are similar to them and who might also seek that space where in a travel perspective, you know, they could meet a potential partner or someone to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think in travel where you, know, you usually make choices that um, help you express yourself, give you space to be yourself, um, that form of LGBTQI travel um, um, segment is probably going to be one that um, has a diversity in how it chooses as well. Um, just like um, Clifford has mentioned, some choose to ex- use it to express themselves, some choose to um, use it as an expression of their identities that they cannot show within an everyday um, context. So I think that travel component is quite important for that group. So maybe we're homogenizing a group of people that's very not homogeneous. Yes, and that's the irony that we talk about heteronormativity a lot in um, the research and um, fall into fall back into that trap where we have now taken um, the LGBTQI community and then homogenized them as the first three, two or three letters, um, and that that's quite ironic. Yes. And is is there an, an a sub segment of people from that large group that we've been talking about that you two focus on? in your research or are you talking about multiple groups? I think we're coming to terms with multiple groups. We're trying to look at, you know, first of all, to start off with what really has been done in terms of those other identities. Predominantly, as I said, the literature tends to focus on those who are uh, sexually diverse. So just trying to wrap our heads around what's been done in that context, because quite often, like, you know, you might have a paper that's about lesbian travelers, but that's sort of extrapolated to homosexual travelers. We know that lesbian travellers make very different decisions to gay travellers, uh, you know, gay men. Uh, so we're just trying to sort of understand, first of all, really what's out there and where are these gaps, where are these extrapolations happening? And then from there, work out an agenda and how, we, how do we deal with it to really make tourism a very inclusive environment? Because, you know, what we're seeing right now, especially with uh, the, country, the world opening up as, it, as, 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 uh, as places have been opening up, getting into social media, is that there are a lot of gay people in the Middle East who can't really live their identities. Uh, gay people in Papua New Guinea who cannot really live their identities. And when I say gay, I'm actually talking again, this is a challenge of the language, <laughs> I'm referring to LGB, uh, who cannot actually live those, those entire identities. And they look at travel as a way of really expressing that and experiencing that and having that safe space to, to be who they are. Mm-hmm. And part of looking at this diversity is is really going back to literature and questioning how it is that it's, um, these terms have been used. Um, I think we're a bit guilty of um, doing the same thing, making the LGBTIQ um, uh, community into one sort of homogenous space. And we haven't quite figured out if that is valid or not. Um, and I don't think anyone's really looked at it in terms of the travel or events space to see if there is enough differentiation or um, are they actually quite homogenous in general? Um, there are arguments against over-segmentation and we're quite aware of that. So we'd like to test these, um, uh, look at the literature rather, and just see if there is any difference that is worth um, going into. So how should I be referring to this segment, this type of travel? Is there a term that you would prefer that I use or? It's really an evolving field. I think it's the plus at the end that does the trick. Okay. So as long as there's a plus, it's usually acceptable. But something that I've uh, I've started liking in terms of terminology is gender and sexually diverse. Okay. Because that includes everyone. Yes. And it's much easier to remember than the full acronym. Yes. 
because the idea really is when you're when you're researching this segment that you do not refer to them as what they're not but what they are right mm. so calling them non-heterosexual which is which happens in the literature every now and then is not everyone is not everyone mm-hmm. it doesn't mean they are not cisgendered which is they identify with their birth gender uh, you know and also like calling them what they're not is really a way of taking away their identity and reducing them to or com- comparing them to that norm which is not really usually healthy so getting into talking about travel in this area so gender and sexual diverse travel what are the issues you've been doing work on this for a while now what are the issues that you're seeing in this type of travel and you know where do you see this going what does it mean for gender and sexual diverse travel what like what's happening right now and what are you seeing in your own research so uh, I've been doing a lot of work around the regional space because uh, at least in Australia at this point in time, we've got a lot of regional pride events happening, uh, sort of on the back of the same-sex marriage vote where in 2017, uh, people of the same sex got the right to marry. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of these regional towns having these events. And the challenge is within these towns, of course, the literature talks about how scary and heteronormative it is because that's what it is. It's very scarily, scarily heterosexual. Uh, it's very Australian by, by culture, is very masculine in its orientation. Uh, and we're looking at how do we open up these towns to have these experiences because there's this perception that there are no gay people in regional Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, one in ten are meant to be part of the LGBTQI+. So when we say right. regional Australia, we're talking not in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide. That's right. That's yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah, basically. Uh, some stats say only 0.18% of Australian landmass is uh, urban. So there's a, there's a very big expanse in the So it's most of Australia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's just looking at about how do we organise these events because these events provide an opportunity to really get, uh, in some way, awareness and education happening. Uh, also to get, help people realise if they are gay to be able to identify with it because if you do not see what gay means you're stuck with an idea which is popularized by media, which is really flamboyant and and different from you. Mm -hmm. It does cause a bit of gender, uh, sorry, a a bit of an identity issue because how do you identify with something you're not? You may be gay, but not flamboyant. Uh, So within these regional towns, looking at how do we organize these events to really bring out that education, to create a community of gay people so they can come together and celebrate and also share that with others. And uh, I'm looking at Pink Dot, which is uh, an event that is um, for the LGBT community as well as the um, broader Singaporean community. And that's held um, at the end of June every year. And that's evolved throughout the year. So it started off very much like a community gathering, uh, a picnic for um, people who identify as LGBTIQ+, um, and then it slowly expanded to their support networks. So having this v- very visual um, day where people can come and have a picnic with their families and showing people who perhaps are not as comfortable um, expressing their gender identities to say that it is okay, we are here and we're out in the open. And so that's grown um, quite a lot in the past few years and um, the next pink dot is actually happening this Saturday. Um, So where we are looking at is looking at uh, events as a form of getting people together. Um, and we talk about social movements quite a bit, and this is an expression of their social movement, getting people to be aware of this community that has been marginalized for a very long time, and then getting them to build networks and um, mobilize their resources in order to help um, with, with their courses. And then at the end, hopefully um, nurture that self-confidence to be able to express themselves or to be able to advocate for their community. 
So Clifford, you, you mentioned that gay marriage being legalized in 2017 in Australia. In the U.S., what do you know what year it was? Oh, I don't. 2015. Yeah, it was a couple of years before, mm. I think. Has anything that you've noticed, like, has that changed LGBTQI travel plus travel mm. at all? Has it changed the way that you're seeing things in research? Because I would imagine that, I mean, that was a really big win. It definitely was. Uh, it, it was about 60, 67% yes, mm-hmm. and the rest no. Uh, so, you know, it definitely was a big win at the end of the day and uh, really uh, a big moment. Uh, it is too soon to know the impact of it on travel per se, because I think literature is catching up with, uh, with, with it happening and, the, you know, of course, the publication timelines. What we did see is that one event, though, did actually cause a lot of anxiety amongst the gay population. So we saw, and you're still experiencing that spike in anxiety and you know some residual depression from having your 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 the legitimacy of your relationship so publicly being examined. Uh, but mm. having said that, I think where we've gone from there is a lot of little towns started to see, great, now we've got same-sex marriage work, we've ticked a box. Why don't we try and organise an event within our own community? So we had the first one in a lovely little town with two thousand people. They had their Mardi Gras. And for that one weekend, the population of that town doubled. Uh, wow. So that's the number of people that came in. Now, this wasn't a tourism event. It was a community event. Mm-hmm. It was about helping the community because all they wanted to do, it was three mums. They wanted to hang out and watch the Sydney Mardi Gras on TV. So it started off from there and ended up with them having their own parade. But it was a community event and community started taking ownership of this idea and inviting friends and relatives and other gay people they knew to, to their hometown to show that it's not you know, for lack of a better word, bigoted in any way. Uh, so we did see a lot of that happening. After Hay, which is the town I'm referring to, had theirs, we had another town with 50,000 people called Wagga Wagga, which decided to have theirs. And it was on the back of this idea that, yes, we've got gender equality, we have the license to do these things. We saw how successful Hay was. Why don't we organise it here? And the wonder about Hay was it was actually not a gay person, but it was a trans person who was organising it. So she had lived in this community and she wanted to basically prove to her community that they were not bigots again. You know, wanted to prove to her community that they were not homophobes and all of that. And it was interesting because we, again, the population, you know, the, again, not a tourist event, again, focused on the community, but it was really hard to get a hotel room that weekend, I can tell you that. Uh, so, you know, there are, of course, people coming in. Uh, and what we saw even in that event, there was this absolute level of surprise amongst the community because we interviewed them before they did it. And they were like, oh, we don't know, we might get a bit of abuse. And then after, and they were all surprised that the community is sort of passing this test that we are not traditional. We have actually moved on and we are embracing and inclusive. After that, we had another little town called Bigo with 3,000 people do the same thing. So we are seeing communities sort of building this VFR tourism in a way, reaching out to people that they know who are gay and people who they know who are allies and inviting them to showcase how, how good their community is, how that they're not traditional, they're not conservative or exclusive rather, and that they are welcoming and open. And it's important that um, they take that specific action to be proactive Mm -hmm. in saying that we're not just um, not against you, we're not just not hostile, we are actively welcoming to these communities. It sends a great message to their own community members, but also to the people around them who may still be very afraid within their own community somewhere near, but not um, in the actual towns themselves. I think that's a very important message in terms of the social movement here. Yeah. And the beauty of this, I should add, and it might be digressing slightly, but uh, 
we heard stories of men who come and watch the parade from a distance and they usually come alone and they watch it alone and some of the anecdotal evidence actually suggests that these are gay men who wonder what their life would have been like if they came out when they were young so by being able to watch the parade it's almost this idea of oh that could have been me you know if i lived in this generation mm -hmm. so it's very therapeutic or rather supportive in that way because you can imagine many young people going through that same identity negotiation mm -hmm. I'm wondering, as you're talking about this, this is community and people focused that these types of events are being embraced mm -hmm. by communities, by people who m there may have been perceptions that they were bigoted before, but that's changing now. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any evidence in your research or another research that people are doing that the tourism industry is embracing this as well in Australia? Like, is it becoming institutionalized rather than something that's organized only by LGBTQ plus people, or is there a little bit of both going on? Well, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. There is the, the, the LGBTQI plus sticker, which a lot of hospitality, uh, hospitality sector services have adopted as a sign of this being a safe place. Yeah, we've been noticing, like we had Gay Pride Month in the US just recently, and pretty much every single travel organization had a flag Mm -hmm. on their Facebook page or they were flying it or mm -hmm. they painted a plane, you know, in a rainbow livery or something like that. Mm -hmm. Is that something you're seeing in Australia as well? Or what, like, what, is the, what are the trends here? I feel like I should talk about Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. <laughs> <Yes>. <That's> <laughs> so relevant, Australia yeah. has got a very interesting history with uh, gay travel and the, the outback, the regional Australia, with the, the movie Priscilla, Queen of the Desert where it is these three gay guys from Sydney who get on a bus and drive to the middle of uh, Whoop Whoop. And, and uh, you know, it was a, this whole movie set around that. And along the way, there's a lot of music and uh, a lot of different commentary. And their whole plan was to be, and I'm going to quote the movie, a cock in a frock on a rock, which is A's rock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Uluru. Uh, and that's, that's what part of their aim of going out there and, you know, experiencing that whole, uh, whole uh, culture. But... What's happened now in the town of uh, Broken Hill? They've actually got a long-standing gay uh, festival called Broken Hill. And uh, pretty good play on words. But it's actually run by the hotel in which these guys sort of went to in the movie. And they sort of run it every year as a, as a festival. And, you know, it gets so busy that you don't get any accommodation as well in October. So I think it's, it's, in, it's in October, mid-October. Uh, and the whole town just packs out. And it is this little hotel, which traditionally, I believe, has been owned by heterosexual people who has actually taken ownership of this idea, of course, seen the commercial opportunity as well, you know, but nonetheless taken ownership and, and sort of gone with it. I like how you mentioned the commercial opportunity because you have been talking a lot about a social movement, and that's one thing. But it seems like businesses are now taking notice of the social movement, and that is driving, you know, they want to make money. Yes. And, you know, some... Corporations have a have a stance on this, and most of them, at least in the U.S., take the capitalist stance, and it's whoever's going to pay us money will take business. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, is that do you see that trend continuing into the future? Because it seems like there's been a pretty radical shift of embracing LGBTQ plus travel just within the last oh gosh, I don't know five or ten years, where you know. Corporations would never take a stance on anything before, and now it's almost unheard of if they don't have a rainbow flag on 
their Facebook page for Gay Pride Month mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. And I think there are two drivers, like you rightly said. It, some of them, it's because um, that's where the pink dollar is. That's where the money is. And you go where the money is and that's good business for them. Um, but there is also the other segment that says we genuinely do believe in this movement. Um, for whichever reasons that this groundswell is, is coming up, uh, we're hoping that that translates into actions from the companies themselves. So whether it's um, tourism companies or event management companies, that they incorporate um, this within their design um, experiences that are friendly to the um, identity expression that some of these um, LGBTIQ plus community members are seeking when they go travel or go to events? Well, you know, I, I take I take a view where, of course, when a company does it blatantly, obviously, like, you know, and I'm thinking of Qantas here, I know the CEO is gay. Uh, it's, it's public knowledge, it's no secret. Uh, but they are in partnership with Emirates Airlines, which is, uh, which is a very from the Middle East, which is a very traditional country where you can still go to jail for being gay. Uh, with Qantas by itself, they're also one of the key sponsors of Sydney Mardi Gras. So you then look at it going, well, you know, are you actually doing this for the money or what? But you take it one step further, and this is a question I haven't been able to resolve entirely. Does it even matter? You know, if we are creating an inclusive environment, regardless of motivation, mm-hmm. of course, it'd be great if they were all on the same page. But as long as we're creating that inclusive environment where people can feel free to be themselves, mm-hmm. does it matter what the actual motivation is driving it? Yes. As long as the outcome is one that supports the community, um, does it matter that it's rainbow washing? Mm-hmm. Um, if I guess in the end, if that normalizes this kinds of practice for the community, then I'm, I'm for it. Mm-hmm. And in regional communities, what we've seen is, of course, you need local sponsors to have these events. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting because when you have these events planned, the money doesn't just come in immediately. No. It's almost like these businesses wait till the end to see what the reaction is, perhaps, mm-hmm. before they decide to invest in it or not. Mm. Yes. You know, but a lot of businesses have been getting on board at the last minute. <laughs> yes. So, you know, whatever their reason is, at least they're on board and they're, they're trying to be open to it, I guess, is, is, is a good opportunity. And it oh. became an op- opportunity for um, Singapore. Uh, with the Pink Dot event, um, previously their sponsors were big multinational companies like Google. And... Um, in one of the previous years, the government stepped in and said, because this has political implications, we can't um, have uh, foreign involvement. And so therefore, there came this red dot for pink dot um, campaign, which was companies that are within um, the local sphere, Singaporean companies, um, we're asking you to step up and show your support for this event. And they ended up um, getting more sponsors than they, they, they anticipated. And that has been a trend since then. Um, So that was a good way for companies to take a stand, local companies to say, this is our community, we acknowledge you as part of our community, and therefore we support this event. Um, And and that's a form of community expression as well. What are the the implications? We've talked a lot about how there's been big changes in the industry and communities and social movements and perception. What are the implications for travelers, for the LGBTQI plus travelers? You know, we talk about it, it's all about being inclusive and letting people express their identity however they see it. How is that affecting them? Well, I think if, if you think about events, you know, yes, we know, we know from the literature that uh, when people travel, they can express their identity. But that's assuming that everyone can actually afford to travel. And events bring this sort of disruption in the norm to your hometown or to a place near you. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, they create an environment where it's okay to be who you are. 
so w- what we're trying to sort of encourage is a bit more mindfulness of these of these events because you know the idea when you go to an event if there are we know there are more than three genders for instance but yet there are only two gendered bathrooms and how do people react in response to that of course you know if you're if you identify in a certain way you should perhaps have the right to uh, do as you you identify with uh, so just I, I guess just being mindful about not excluding people or making commentary about uh, people who differ from the norm and differ from what you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, because within, within their hometown, this is perhaps the only ability to express and experience that. Another, another thing that's perhaps relevant is also not outing people. Uh, you know, it's, it's this personal journey and you don't want to be outed because you've been cited at an event, especially in a regional town. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've been cited in a certain way or, or, or whatever, I think there's that mindfulness that needs to be there. And I think in terms of um, design, I think there's a need to think about what our normal practices are currently. And is there a need for us to critically um, examine what it is that we do as normal and see if there are any ways that we can change the normal so that we are more inclusive of that community? So that's you kind of mentioned some things that your everyday travelers could do and think about impacts. But I'm more thinking like, what are the impacts on having more inclusivity on LGBTQI plus travelers? What are the implications for those types of travelers that mm-hmm. are now having events that are catering to them, now having events that are put on specifically for them, now having more opportunities to travel to places maybe where they didn't feel comfortable before? How is that impacting people who identify as any of those groups? Yeah, so there is there is a fair bit that talks about the value in these escapes. You know, and this is again where the literature takes an interesting move because when we look at the motives of travel, and we've again looked at just, you know, LGB people traveling and their motives of travel, and we've sort of concluded in the literature, oh, look, there's not that much of a difference. They travel for similar reasons. Mm-hmm. But what we are noticing more and more so now is that esca- the, the idea of that escape, and we know the value of escape psychologically. Mm-hmm. We know the value of, uh, you know, escape even within a heterosexual community to just go away and have a break. But also then when you look at the nuances of the LGBTQI plus community, this idea of being being able to escape from a heteronormative environment to an environment where you can actually be free to be yourself. One of the challenges in regional Australia, for instance, uh, you know, I've heard stories about I can't go out with my boyfriend and just have breakfast. Mm-hmm. But the and you're hyper vigilant because of that. It's not a case of you plan to be but you're just naturally hypervigilant in, in those environments where you're expecting some sort of aggression. And then to be able to go away where you are still not a, a minority, but still not a majority, but you're still less of a minority than you were before. So where you're just one of many, as opposed to, you know, the only gay in the village uh, or the only trans in the village to be inclusive. Uh, and you, you're able to sort of experience that. Of course, it's going to help your relationship to begin with because you're actually able to have that proper sense of a relationship. You don't have to pretend like the person you're with is your flatmate, you know, which happens a lot in Muslim countries, for mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. And it allows them to have the sort of relationship which, which they have the right to. In addition to that, you, you're not being hypervigilant, so you're actually allowed to lay down your guard for a little while. Uh, you know, and I think that that sense of relief, and that's what that escape really means. It's that, and you know, of course, there is the psychological well-being based on that. Um, the idea of socialization is another one because if you're the only gay in the village, and I use again the word gay to be inclusive, how are you going to meet a partner if that's what you want to do? Uh, you know, how are you going to meet other people to explore your identity? 
you know, even on the most basic level to have that sexual relationship that you would like, how are you going to do that within a hometown that might not have anyone else who's out? Mm-hmm. Uh, so to be able to do that semi-anonymously and figure out whether really is that you or is that not is, is a privilege. And again, that's what travel allows you to do. Events, on the other hand, bring people back in. So if there are these, uh, you know, if there are gay people who are coming in, it at least allows you to experience similar things again, but within that environment. Of course, you're still cautious because you wouldn't want, you know, Jenny next door finding out. But uh, it's a little bit safer because there are more, there are more of you now. Mm-hmm. And I think there's safety and um, security in numbers, in knowing that you're not alone. Um, despite the fact that um, the LGBTIQ community has really um, gone up in profile around the world, um, much of the services that we provide are still very much, um, does not advantage them very well. And it, it ends, you end up with people who, for example, um, may identify as um, LGBTIQ, who live in aged care communities. Um, and find that despite the, the wider social acceptance these days that the community around them still doesn't accept that they are of that identity. So that becomes another stress factor that comes back again at a time when they need that help, they need the aged care services, um, but find themselves excluded because of that social opinion. So that's where the normalization of, of um, the community and making it easy to just be who you are, just express who you are, um, comes in. And that's where we're, we're hoping the research will help with. Yeah. I think the, the literature calls it minority stress. Yes. The stress of being one of one, of one basically, in a, mm. in a little town. Mm. Uh, you know, I've also heard health benefits uh, in terms of uh, sexual health, because I've heard stories of people who get tested when they go on holiday, because they wouldn't want to go to the local GP and say, can you test me for these diseases? Because mm. could out them. You mm. know, so at least from a regional perspective, or if you live in a community that's not that accepting, the uh, travel does give you that privilege. Are there, are there resources out there for LGBTIQ plus travelers? Like if they are looking for resources, where do I find these events? How do I find things that cater to my identity? Where do they look? There's Mr. Airbnb. <laughs> Have you heard of that? I think that's a great concept. Yeah. No. It's a Airbnb for gay people. Basically, yeah. yes. That's so a great the idea. <laughs> I think I think that's such a great idea, and uh, you know because at least then you know you're safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another thing that a lot of uh, gay people tend to do, and I know Grinder gets a rap for being a hookup app, mm-hmm. but also using it from a tourism perspective to meet locals when you travel, mm. to actually experience towns as a local. Mm-hmm. Of course, what you do after that is uh, their business. Uh, but you know there are all these different tools that I think the gay community has adopted or adapted to using to help them navigate their way. But there's no there's no like database of. LGBTIQ plus events or anything like that that's like not that, anybody's put together not that as we're a aware of as a, as a global resource mm-hmm. um, most of these are um, subsumed within individual uh, sort of state authorities or or state organizations so for example um, I'm working with the Queens and AIDS Council quack and they are looking at launching a calendar that the community can actually put in events that are um, LGBTIQ plus um, friendly. So mm. th- initiatives like that are a way to start getting the community actively involved and in saying we are going to be um, c- that community friendly, um, but not as a global resource, not really. Yeah, you wonder if it's kind of lagging behind because like if I say I want to go run a marathon, there's a hundred mm-hmm. websites mm-hmm. that list, here's all the marathons you could possibly run. Um, I wonder also if there is 
some resistance toward if it's something like a membership site to being put on a list, mm. right? Because if all of a sudden you have a list of all the LGBTIQ plus people, what happens if somebody finds that list and That's somebody cool. finds out that you don't want to know, like you're saying, anonymity is nice sometimes. Yeah. And, and data is data until somebody with intent uses it. So mm. it could be used for good or for malicious purposes. So that's not necessarily what we um, most communities want to do at this point. Um, but in, in allowing them spaces, in, in creating these spaces to be allowed to express their own identity, it then is a, an opt-in kind of approach um, mm. to expressing their identities. And like Clifford mentioned earlier, that um, some people may prefer to be on the sidelines until they are ready to express that. And that's perfectly fine as well, as long as um, they, they know that they are safe within the spaces. So what about for non-LGBTIQ plus travelers? How are those types of travelers, how should they be allies to these communities and how do they help uh, make travel and tourism more inclusive? I know you mentioned a couple of them in thinking about like design of spaces and are they heteronormative or not heteronormative. Mm -hmm. um, let's say somebody's traveling on a trip, you know, are there things you can do to be more inclusive or are there things you can do in your own community to be more inclusive to, to LGBTIQ plus travelers? It's about being a decent person, I guess, at the end of the day and being vigilant in case you notice someone's being picked on, which is a very it's a bit of a motherly statement to say. But, you know, just standing up for people who might be, be, be being picked on. Uh, but it's also the idea of, uh, you know, as we spoke about, the, the mindfulness. If you see uh, what you think is a female coming out of the male's toilet, you know, not to be quick to judge or react or respond and vice versa. If you see what is a male coming out of a female toilet, mm -hmm. you know, I think take your time to actually examine the situation before you make claims. Uh, so just being a bit mindful in that way, perhaps. Uh, but as a as a traveller, I'm not sure. What do you think, Faye? I think um, it comes back to what what we've mentioned in quite a bit, which is. Um, accepting it's normal. Um, some of the best anecdotes that have come up um, for people who travel specifically to go to these Pride events is that because they're so used to not being accepted that let's say they get on a cab and um, the cab um, driver asks them where they're going, they say, oh, this Pride event, bracing themselves for a negative reaction. Mm. And for them to go, oh, that event, that sounds like a really great one, too bad I'm driving, but have a great day over there, have fun over there. And it's just, it puts people at ease. So in a way, it's just perhaps some of um, these community members just want to travel like a normal person without having to be singled out. And I think giving them that form of um, uh, normal experience, reacting normally to them, is, is something that would be appreciated, I think. Yeah, and the reality is, like, you know, back in the 70s, 60s, we fought for equality. 1958, I think, was Stonewall. That's when we fought for equality in a way that we didn't want to be neglected. But now we don't want to st stand out, really. We just want to be treated like everyone else and go about with our business, really, yeah. uh, and have a good time. Uh, and, of course, you know, it's always fun to go to a gay club. <laughs> That's music. <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot of good things people can do. Hmm. Uh if they want to be an ally, if they want to be more intelligent in this area. So um, I want to finish by changing gears a little bit because I always talk a little bit about my guest's traveler personality because I think it really influences how we do our research. So you both took the traveler personality quiz. And let's start with Faith since you've got your results up in front of you. Uh, what was your traveler personality and do you, do you think it got you right? 
I, I got the relaxer, which says that I'd like to have everything taken care of for me. Um, I like to be comfortable in my travels. And if I find a destination I like, that I will most likely come back. It says that I enjoy traveling without too much risk and activities like visiting a theme park, uh, taking a cruise or sitting by the pool with a cold drink. Um, I think that's about half true <laughs> um, because I think I like to be in control of the um, itinerary within the limits of my risk profile. So while I'm not a sort of risk person, I'm, I'm a sort of person who likes um, a quiet vacation, so not necessarily a cruise or a theme park. Um, but I like to be... I like to have things taken care of by myself. <laughs> Do you think having control over things is your way of mitigating risk? Like um, if, you, if you've planned everything, how could anything possibly go wrong? Well, that's that's part of it. That's part of knowing how you've planned something. And then I like to describe my personality as my plan Bs have plan Bs. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, while there's some element of control, there's always... Um, well, you travel to get out of your normal zone. And so um, understanding that there's always going to be risk is going to be um, integral to enjoying um, the experience. But yes, I would like to have good input into the initial itinerary. <laughs> if things fall apart um, while I'm overseas, well, that's what credit cards are for. <laughs> <laughs> and Clifford, you're, you're a day tripper, according to the Traveler Personality Quiz, correct? Yeah, I, I should confess, this is what my true identity is probably a day tripper. My self-identity is probably an adventurer. I like to believe I'm, I, I'm adventurous, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, and it is exactly like, you know, the word capsulates. I like to be able to do things, but then come back to the comfort of my home or uh, uh, a Western environment, so to speak, if, if you know what I mean, something that's more familiar, even be it a hotel room or something like that, as opposed to roughing it out in a camp or a, or a hostel or something like that. So you seek out tried and true experiences, but like to have some freedom, and that's true. So we're going on a trip uh, on Friday. Uh, basically, I've said, these are the two things I want to do, and apart from that, I really don't care. <laughs> so I've let someone else make all the decisions, and uh, you know, not to have that, that freedom in terms of being able to do things a bit I like to believe I'm spontaneous, but uh, but not really. Uh, but uh, yeah, spontaneously based on the itinerary. Uh, <laughs> spontaneous within limits. Exactly. <laughs> Familiar destinations are appealing. You like to get out and see the surrounding areas. Yeah, I do like to push my boundaries a little bit, and uh, you know, then again, retreat back to what I like and uh, what I'm what I'm familiar with. Um, have some things taken care of for you, but seek the flexibility. Yep. As I said, uh, you know, my partner's put together the whole plan. So I'm just rocking up and, uh, yeah, I know where we're going, uh, Croatia and London and, uh, and Oxford, that's about it. Uh, <laughs> that sounds lovely. <laughs> so, yes, it's definitely spot on. Uh, Evan, I might, we might add about the uh, event inclusivity stuff. What do sure. you think? Yeah, I think yeah. we should. Yeah. Because I think that really like ties in with what you're saying in terms of what do we do? How do we, as a tourism community or, you know, even as, as tourists, how do we... Uh, make these things more inclusive and one of the, the projects that uh, Faith and our colleague Oscar and I are working on is looking at how do we make events more inclusive. We understand that there are going to be those things that suppliers or event organizers think is the norm uh, in terms of what they can and cannot do mm -hmm. but also what do people actually want in terms of that inclusivity. Uh, with this being such a topical topic because everyone is like you know is, it's on point in terms of being very inclusive and and all of that, we know that event goers do have a higher expectation. But 
I do not know whether suppliers have reached that level of meeting that expectation. Mm. Mm -hmm. So understanding that divide between what they are doing and why and what else could be done, because what else could be done could also be uh, not just from uh, a supplier perspective, but also from a in-group perspective. And one of the challenges, or rather the buzzwords in in Australia at the moment, uh, not the moment, but one of the buzzwords around this is this idea of uh, toxic masculinity. Mm where events are very, you know, there's this, there's a lot of rage, there's a lot of testosterone, uh, and that's what it is. So how do we then start changing that that conversation? Because, of course, event organisers can do certain things, you know, maybe the toilets, uh, you know, could be other things like that, uh, the functional things or the, 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 the process things. But the toxic masculinity is something which the community at the event can influence mm-hmm. and change and manage. So we're trying to understand what is that, uh, that needs to be done to make these events more inclusive, not just for the LGB, but also the TQI+. Yes. Oh, I got that right. <laughs> yeah. and, and part of how we're looking at that is to examine experiences of event attendees um, and also people who choose not to attend events for certain reasons. So we're trying to unearth what is it that is not being said at so these events. So it would be like barriers to attendance. In a way, yes. Um, and we're looking at how that will um, that can help us create um, inclusivity principles uh, for events so that, you know, it's not just LGBTIQ events, it's all events. So if we think that this is, uh, well, normal is worth the critical examination and therefore um, if we call into question what it means to be inclusive and whether these are actually um, uh, manifesting as as, um, design, then perhaps we can help um, most of these events become more inclusive. Yeah. So this is the future of your research and, and where you see things going Absolutely. in the future. Yes. yes. Yep. Thank you so much yep. for coming on the show. This has been Thank wonderful. You. I feel like I've the, my favorite part about this podcast is I get to learn about so many different aspects of travel and tourism. And so every time I do a new interview, I'm always excited that I get to learn something new and I get to be, you know, in this case, more inclusive and understanding of the LGBTIQ plus community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one more person that understands a little bit more can help, I hope. Absolutely. Thank you for having us on your podcast as well. We really enjoyed this. Absolutely. Thank you.